These are the last words of King David. Today is the last week we're going to be in 2 Samuel. We've been looking at 2 Samuel for a couple of months now, since September actually. And it's the last week in 2 Samuel. I'm going to read these last words of King David in 2 Samuel 23 and then just have a time of prayer that as we spend a few minutes here in God's Word, they might give us uh, his, his insight and His wisdom. So 2 Samuel 23 beginning in verse 1, uh, reads like this. These are the last words of David, the inspired utterance of David, son of Jesse, the utterance of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by God of Jacob, the hero of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, When one rules over people in righteousness, when one rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning, like the brightness after rain that brings grass from the earth. If my house were not right with God, surely he would not have made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part. Surely he would not bring to fruition my salvation and grant me my every desire. But evil men are all to be cast aside like thorns, which are not gathered with the hand. Whoever touches thorns used as a tool of iron or the shaft of a spear, they are burned up where they lie. We join me as we pray. God, we thank you for this morning, and we thank you for the joy that children bring to our lives. We thank you, God, for the joy of seeing children serve and having an opportunity for our church to serve children and their families, and we're thankful, God, for the ministry you're having in our community and in our church, especially in the lives of young people. And we give you praise, God, for the many people that you used to do a work of ministry, fruitful ministry, this week in Vacation Bible School. We thank you for the safety you provided, how you provided for all the needs, and for the ministry of the gospel this week at Vacation Bible School. We thank you, God, not only for our church, but for the other churches in the valley that are diligently working to serve the kingdom of God through proclaiming the gospel. And this morning, we remember Ashland First Baptist in Ashland and ask God a special season of your grace on them as they go through some challenges and difficulties. God, may you show yourself faithful as you always do. God, we thank you for the team of young people who are headed out to Latvia here in a few weeks. We thank you have provided all the money and resources that are needed. We ask now, God, that you would lay uh, ahead of time the road for an effective and fruitful ministry there. And we look forward to hearing from them the ministry of the gospel in Latvia while, while they are there. We also, God, thank you for the Youth for Christ ministry that Tim Hardy has in Grants Pass, and we want to lift up praise for the uh, over 20 kids who were saved at a middle school camp at Fur Point here in the last couple of weeks. Thank you, God, for your faithful ministry of the gospel through Youth for Christ and uh, Tim and Liz Hardy. And God, we lift up Kurt Techmeyer and ask for your hand of healing to continue to be on him. We pray for Estelle Husky, God, that you would bring a donor for her right away for her transplant needs. And God, we pray for Rebecca, Caitlin, Alyssa, Landon, Shane, and Chris, that you might do a work in their life this week, that they would come to know you as Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and you can turn there if you like. You don't have to if you don't want to. You can just follow along with me. But We're going to talk a little bit about kings and kingdoms this morning. And a question that we might raise as Americans is, why a monarch? Why would you have a king or a queen? We've worked relatively hard in the course of our history to not have one. I think we fought wars, in fact, to ensure that we don't have a monarch. Why would you want a monarchy or a royalty or a kingdom? Actually, this was quite a bit of a discussion about this in regard to whether or not a monarchy is needed in Great Britain in the late 17th and 18th centuries. And one writer named Walter Badgett had this to say about the monarchy, and he was defending the need of a royal family in England. So I'm going to read this. From Walter Badgett. I think he's, I don't know when he wrote it. He wrote it before today. (laughs) Here's what he said, we catch the Americans smiling at our queen with her secret mystery. England, as an old and complicated society, requires more than mundane, dreary logic. The mystic reverence, the religious allegiance, which are essential to a true monarchy, are imaginative sentiments that no legislature can manufacture in any people. As the colonial power and riches of England have declined, there is an increasing desire to define greatness as something other than wealth and territory. Britain wants to believe it is intrinsically special. People yield a deference to what they may call the theatrical show of society and royalty. The climax of this theater is the queen. So his argument was, no, there's no logical reason why you would need a monarchy, but the fact is, especially in a society like England, which was shrinking at the time, There was a need for a sense of significance and importance, and people could find that in the monarchy. We feel important because we have an important queen or an important king. I want to feel special. I want to feel important or powerful or wealthy or significant. And if I can't find that in my own life, perhaps I can find that in the monarchy, in a royal family. The fact is, though, any royalty, any royal family, any monarchy, it always comes with strings attached. There's always qualifications and things that are necessary. And we find out that Jesus, in fact, made a claim to kingdom. He said, in fact, He is the King of all things. Through Jesus, all things were made and all things are sustained. And during His time here, He made a claim to the throne of the world. He said, I am the King, the King not only of the Jews, but of the universe, And so if God in Christ is the king, what does that mean? What what should we expect of our king? What does our king expect of us? Some of you like titles to messages. The title of this message is, In Search of a Good King. In Search of a Good King. First and Second Samuel, just real briefly, are basically a very lengthy comparison between King David and King Saul as kings. I don't know if you know this, but King David is the good guy. 
King Saul is the bad guy. So what I want to do just very quickly is compare and show the differences between King Saul and King David and then show how the similarities line up with King Jesus. And then we're going to conclude with prayer and go have hot dogs. All right, you got an amen on the hot dogs. That's the way, that's the way we roll. Okay, good. King Saul, in search of a good king. Number one, King Saul was a weak king in need of mighty warriors. In search of a good king, number one, we had King Saul. He was a weak king in search of mighty warriors. We discover this in 1 Samuel 14, 52. Uh, All the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And listen, whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. King Saul was an extraordinarily weak leader When he was chosen as king, where did they find him? Hiding in the baggage. They had to convince him to come out to be anointed king. He was constantly insecure, constantly afraid, uh, was uh, toward the end of his reign paranoid. He didn't have the wherewithal to trust God in the midst of his fear and anxiety, and as a result of that, he disobeyed God, and God removed the kingdom from him. He was a weak king, and he sought to bolster his weaknesses by surrounding himself with powerful and mighty warriors. So whenever this weak, uh, insecure, and paranoid king would see a mighty and strong warrior, he would think, I know a way I can now strengthen my throne, strengthen my reign. He would draft that warrior into his service, and he would surround himself with the strongest and the mightiest. I mean, when you see somebody with the strongest and mightiest, you assume they also are strong and mighty, don't you? Well, this was not true for Saul. He surrounded himself with strong warriors to make up for the fact that he was not one. It seems like that would be a good strategy. I mean, that seems like that would make sense as a king. Why not surround yourself with the strongest? But the problem is the strength of the king of Israel is not supposed to come from his warriors. Where is the strength of the king of Israel supposed to come from? From God himself. Remember, the king of Israel is not appointed by election. The king of Israel is appointed by God himself. And the king of Israel is intended to find his strength and power in the God of Israel and not from his mighty men. But Saul could not trust God for strength, and so he trusted himself with strong and mighty people around him. Now, maybe a weak king doesn't seem very appealing to you. Would you want a weak king to be your king? Probably not. But I'm going to suggest one reason you might enjoy having a weak king. Because a weak king needs heroes. If your king is mighty and a hero, what's the chances of you ever being big time? You will never be big time because the king is the big time. He is the hero. But in a situation where the leader, the king, is a weakling and an insecure, paranoid uh, person, it gives you a great opportunity to gain significance in your own life by being a hero of the kingdom. We can rise to the challenge. We can be one of the king's mighty warriors. We can stand up for what's right in a kingdom that seems running amok. 
So maybe we would prefer a strong king, but I think there's also a part of us on the inside because each of us is built with a little bit of a desire to be the most important thing in the world. I apologize, I understated that. Every one of us is built with an innate desire to think the planet is named planet me, whatever your name is. Thank you all for letting us be on your planet, right? We would love to be the biggest time, the big time. I mean, we're the, the most important person in our lives because we're the one we spend the most time with. Is God weak? It's a silly question, I suppose. Is God weak? If He is our King, is He weak and insecure and paranoid like King Saul was? Is, is God a king who needs our help? I know we would say we, we all understand our Bible and none of us feel comfortable saying God is weak. We feel a little bit awkward maybe even having the question asked. But maybe we could ask it this way. Is God doing what you expect for Him to do? That's a, that's a more annoying question, isn't it? Is God doing what I expect? If God is not doing what I expect, there's a couple of things that must be true. Number one, He's weak and He can't pull it off. I've asked for something He can't provide. Number two, it's not that he's weak, he just doesn't give a rip. He could do it. He's just mean. Or what's the third option we don't like very much? Maybe he's God and we're not. And he may know, in fact, better what we need than we do. And that's a little bit harder. If you've raised children, you know what that's like to have that conversation with your child. They think chocolate milk at bedtime is a fantastic idea. Actually, that is a fantastic idea now that I think about it. <laughs> Kid's right. Nailed it. If God is weak, He needs heroes to show up. If God's weak, He needs mighty men around Him to handle His business. He needs people to show up and be the big time, do the right thing, stand in the gap, all these kinds of things, and this builds in us this hero complex. The question is, why are we sometimes wearing ourselves out for God? It's because somewhere in the back of our minds, we've decided He needs some help. And so we work, and we fill ourselves with anxiety, and we strain, and we, 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 we look for uh, in our life to, 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 to squeeze out every ounce of whatever, to say, uh, i got to work for God so He's going to bless me or whatever it might be. We, we wear ourselves out for God because we imagine He's on break. He's taking a Union 10. God is not weak and He does not need our help. God is not a weak king looking for mighty warriors to fill His ranks. We don't need to wear ourselves out for God because He is not a weak and insecure and paranoid king like King Saul was. There's another way to do this. There's a, there's a better way to do this. And in King David, we're going to see the better way. He doesn't do it perfect, mind you. He's not Jesus. But the way that David, David constructs his kingdom imagines the way Christ would do it. it. We might say it prefigures or show us what's to come. So in search of a good king, number one, Saul is a weak king who needs mighty warriors. Number two, David is a mighty king who makes mighty warriors. Do you hear the difference? 
Saul is a weak king. He needs mighty warriors around him to, to have any strength. David is different. David is a mighty king who makes mighty warriors. 1 Samuel 22, verse 1 and following, David was fleeing from King Saul because King Saul wanted to kill him. They weren't getting along. They were having a bit of a tiff. So David left Gath and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. Oh, you know where that is. Google it. You can find it. His brothers in his father's household heard about it and they went down to him at the cave. And then David gathered around him all of those loyal. Ready? Verse 2. Are you ready? Verse 2 of chapter 22. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him and became and he became their commander about 400 men who does Saul gather around him all the studs who does David gather around him the distressed they come they come dragging themselves in they haven't eaten a full meal in weeks the indebted hey what can you what do you bring to the table for the uh, the, the men of David uh, I owe a bunch of money And then on top of the distressed and the debt indebted, it's the discontented. These are a great group of people. No matter where they are, something's wrong. Doesn't matter what's going on. I'm not saying that's any of you. You came out on a holiday weekend, so it's obviously not you. So you've got those who are in distress, they barely are able to drag themselves into the cave. You've got those who are in debt, they've got nothing. They're fleeing for their lives so they can avoid debtor's prison. And then you've got the discontented who showed up. They walk into the cave. They go, oh, great. These people are here. The complaining starts immediately. People flock to David, people who not bring something to David, but actually people who need something from David, the distressed, the indebted, the discontented. What happens to these people? Flip with me over to 2 Samuel 23, beginning in verse 8. These are the names of David's mighty warriors. Now, we're not, we don't have time to read this whole passage. This is a cool passage of Scripture right up in here. Okay, maybe we're going to read it a little bit. There was Josheb Bashabeth, the Tecmonite. He was chief of the three. He raised his spear against 800 men whom he killed in one encounter. Wow, that's a lot of guys. Next to him was Eleazar, son of Dodai the Ahohite. You didn't make fun of these guys' names, I'll tell you that much. As one of the three, he was with David when they taunted the Philistines. The Israelites retreated, so they were talking trash to the Philistines, and all the rest of the Israelites said, oh, we went too far, we're out of here. This guy didn't. He stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to the sword. Hand cramp. Guy had sword hand cramp. Next to him was Shammah, son of Agi the Harite. The Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils. Everybody ran away except for this guy because he loves lentils. Shammah took this stand in the middle of the field and he defended those beans like nobody's business. He had a great victory. Call it the great bean victory. 
these were just, there's a number of, uh, look down verse 20, Benaiah, well, this is my favorite one, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. He struck down a huge Egyptian. Now, the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, and Benaiah went against him with a club. So he took the spear from the Egyptian and killed him with it. I mean, these guys were tough hombres. Where did these guys start? Indebted, distressed, discontented. See, Saul sought to build up his strength by finding the strongest. David, on the other hand, is a mighty king who has made mighty men through the faithfulness of God. See, God made David, who was a small man, mighty. David did not need mighty men because he had a mighty God. The source of his strength and his power was not in his skills or ability. It was in God himself So as David shared his God with his men, he was at the same time sharing his might with his men. David needed none of them because he had a mighty God. So what Samuel does, the pattern especially of 2 Samuel, is he tells us the exploits of David and then finishes with the climax, which isn't David's exploits. What is it? It's the exploits of his mighty men. The pattern here is not David lives a life and crescendos at this peak. In fact, the tail end of David's life is mostly a train wreck. But the crescendo of David's life and reign is the fact that the mightiness of God was shared by him to his men, and, his ex- and the exploits of his men, really, were much better than David's exploits. What did David do? Kill one Goliath? Earlier in chapter 22, his guys kill four giants. In the Benaiah, he kills a lion in a pit on a snowy day. What the Bible doesn't mention is he could have done it on a clear day. He waited for the snow. He thought, it's too easy. I want some snow on the ground. I made that part up. Don't. Is a mighty king appealing? Oh, sure, a mighty king is appealing. A mighty king is appealing to us because it allows us, in the midst of him being mighty, to fulfill what God has called us to do. The question becomes, if if I'm going to follow a mighty king like David or a mighty king like Christ, do I want God to become mighty in me, or do I want myself to become a mighty man or woman of God? What do I want to be strong about me? Me becoming stronger or my king becoming stronger in and through me? I mention this because of 2 Samuel 24. We're just going to touch on it briefly. 2 Samuel 24, David decides to take a census of all of his mighty men, of all of his military. And this is a, this is a terrible sin. This is a terrible sin because what it's David trying to do is demonstrate that if he has enough military, he no longer has to trust who? God. If I've got a big enough army, if I've got a big enough military and my borders are well protected, I can finally sit back and relax and rest because I don't have any needs. And the problem is, in taking a census, he's demonstrating he wants to rely on his military strength 
instead of relying on the one who has given him strength, which is God. So David takes the census and God intervenes right away after the census is done. And God proclaims judgment on David because of his decision. And a plague strikes Israel and 70,000 people die. This is a great way for the book to end, isn't it, for David? Does something wrong and loses 70,000 people. Finally, he is able to get uh, to offer an offering of confession and repentance to God, which God receives, and the, and the plague stops. He offers the, uh, the offering, and the, and the plague stops as a way of saying, okay, God, you're right. I need to trust you, not in my, my army. I need to trust you, not in the strength of my mighty men. David has learned in that moment he he isn't trusting that God would make him strong enough to no longer need God. The idea here is that we'll need God until his dying day. Here's a question I might ask as you seek the Lord in prayer and seek Him to intervene in your life in the ways you have needs. We all have them. The question is, are we... When we evaluate what we want to see God do in our life, do we want to see God work because we want to see how mighty God is, or do we want God to work in us so we can finally be strong enough to no longer need Him? So think of the things you're asking God for, or the things I think about that I'm asking God for. Am I asking God to provide these things so that I can finally stop having to ask Him for help? Do I want God to make me strong so I don't need Him anymore? We have to understand when we serve a mighty king, the goal is not to become so big that we don't need God anymore. The goal here is that God might be the one we need forever. But it means we have to finally agree with Him that He is mighty and we are not. Look with me at verse 24 of 2 Samuel 24. David was going to offer a sacrifice to God as worship for his grace in forgiving him for his sin. And he is going to offer the sacrifice on a plot of land owned by Aruna. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. He's not here to tell me. It's because there is what, that location was where the plague ended. And so David is going to offer a sacrifice. And Aruna says to David, here, have the land and you can offer your sacrifice. And David says this. No, I insist on paying you for it, the land. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. David says, I will not offer a sacrifice for sin, burnt offerings that cost me nothing. The pattern that David is establishing here by following the law is that sacrifice is needed for rebellion, and David understood he couldn't offer a sacrifice that didn't cost him anything. The whole idea of a sacrifice is it is costly. In fact, this location that he is purchasing is the same location that Abraham went to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, and God spared Isaac. Remember that? There's another thing that is important in this location. It is the location of Solomon's temple. Currently, it has a temple in the Dome of the Rock on it. But that is the land that is being referenced to here. The pattern here is for sacrifice to be offered for rebellion that the people might be uh, uh, redeemed from their sin. 
But see, the problem is that David had that Jesus doesn't have. David had to offer a sacrifice for his sin and the people's sin. We clearly need an even better king than David. It's great that we don't have to deal with Saul, who is a weak king. David is a mighty king who has a mighty God. But the problem we have with David is David cannot offer a sacrifice that handles the whole problem because David has his own sin problem. What we need is a king like David who doesn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sin. We need a king like David that is better than David. And the right answer in church, we always know it's Jesus, right? Jesus a victorious king brings rest. What are the three points? You ready? Some of you guys like writing notes, some don't. It's fine. Number one, in search of a good king. Saul, a weak king, needs mighty warriors. Number two, David is a mighty king who makes mighty warriors. Number three, Jesus is a victorious king who brings rest. We see this in Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus said this, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. He's referring to his disciples there as little children, and that was a compliment. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. See, Jesus is like David. He doesn't seek the best and the brightest. He seeks the fishermen and the tax collectors and the zealots. And this is what Jesus says to all of them. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. What's that sound like? Distressed, indebted, discontented. And Jesus says, I'm the same way. Come to me, all you who are burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Not merely for your life, for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, He will make the weak mighty and He will give the mighty rest. When we come to Christ, He says, I want to give you the weak ones strength, and in your strength I will give you rest. Luke chapter 12, he says this, when you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, don't worry about how you're going to defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So he says to his disciples, as you go to proclaim the good news to the world around you, I want to make sure you got it dialed in, right? Make sure you got your skills in line. No, what does he say? I will be mighty through you. Don't even worry about what you're going to say. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to give you the power to proclaim the good news. Jesus says, I'm going to make you mighty by being your sacrifice and paying for your sin. Remember King David when he made the sacrifice to end the plague? He had to pay for his own sin. And what does the Bible say about Christ? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might have His righteousness. So unlike David, David gathers the weak like Christ did, and, and David makes the weak mighty like Christ did. But unlike David, Christ makes atonement even though He has no sin. He makes us righteous in the midst of His own righteousness. 
The plague ends at the cross. The plague ends at the cross. At the cross, death and sin, it's defeated. It's over. Game over. At, at the cross, Jesus ends the plague once and for all. It's over. We referenced Romans 8, 1 earlier today. I want to just touch on it real quick here. This is Romans 8, 1. I'm going to read it. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read it for you. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives li- that gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so He condemned sin. This is done in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. We do not live according to the flesh, that is our sin, but according to the righteousness God has given us through the Spirit. So Jesus at the cross says, uh, there's no condemnation. In Christ, we are made righteous. In fact, we are mighty. And in Christ, because of the truth of Romans 8, we are at rest. If you remember the quote I read at the beginning of the message, I said the climax of the play or the climax of the theater is the what? Can't remember, that was like an hour ago. It wasn't that long ago. The climax of this play of seeking a king, the climax of the play in England is the queen. We have to understand then, uh, that's partially true, but the heights of God's story, the pinnacle of God's story to the world, the the, the highest peak of where God is going, trying to communicate what He is up to in creation, is the cross and the empty tomb. The pinnacle of God's story to mankind is the cross and the empty tomb. The climax of God's story is Jesus, who died on the cross to redeem the weak and rose from the dead that the weak might rest. Jesus is not like Saul. He is not a weak king in, look, in searching for mighty warriors. Jesus is a mighty king who makes the weak mighty. He is also the victorious king so we can rest. We can rest knowing that He has redeemed us. Okay, just a couple of questions. We're going to end with this. You ready? There's something you ask yourself. I noticed nobody said, yeah, we're ready. I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you working your tail off for God? Like when you think of your relationship with God, is the way you define it just a ton of work? Oh, I've got so much to do for Jesus. I've got to read my Bible, I've got to pray, I've got to volunteer. I don't know what it is in your mind that you feel like you're supposed to do. Are you working your tail off for God? Is, is a relationship with God just wearing you out? Well, you need to ask yourself why do you think God is so weak? The only reason we wear ourselves out for God is we're convinced He needs our help. So you have to, why do I think God is so weak? Why do I think He needs my help? If you didn't show up, is God going to go, oh man, I had no idea they weren't going to make it. What am I going to do now? The whole thing's coming apart. No, God can handle it. He is gracious to allow us to participate in what He is doing, but we need to have the humility to say, He doesn't need us. 
If we're working our tail off for God, we need to confess we think He's weak and He needs our help. Okay, another question. Has God faithfully grown you and blessed you in your life? I hope for many of us that's the truth. We say, God has blessed me in my life. He has grown me in the knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. The question is, do, you under, do we understand that the purpose of God's blessing and His growth in our life is that we might have a greater awareness of our need of Christ, not a lesser awareness of our need? Let me put it this way. When we're living and getting closer to Christ over the course of our life, the day you are going to know you need Him most is the day you die. The trajectory of the Christian life is one towards increased dependency, not decreased dependence on God. The day you are most confident in who you are as a Christian is the day of your salvation. You will then spend the rest of your Christian life realizing how big a deal that salvation was. And on your dying day, the trajectory of the Christian life is one where we say, Oh God, thank you. I cannot believe you took one like me. Over the course of our life, we ought to have the, the, our brokenness revealed to a greater and greater degree that we might rest in, in Him more and more. It's not a negative story, it's a positive one to see Him become more and more mighty in us. Let me close with this passage of Scripture in Philippians. Philippians 4, 12 and 13. This is what the Apostle Paul says about his relationship with